This is the Raider Cotton Nation podcast with your host, Alpha Mike, and our roster of co-hosts, we patrol America's law enforcement beat. We invite you today on a ride-along. Now, here's your weekly briefing on Raider Cop Nation. Try it again. We're trying to contact Wonder Woman. But in the meantime, we'll start with the episode. I am your host on Radio Cop Nation Alpha Mike, episode 56 Extreme Ownership. That's right. Extreme Ownership. Tighten your seatbelts because we're going to go for a little ride, a little law enforcement ride. Between subordinate and supervisor, supervisor and subordinate, leaders of the organization, and how all that interacts with each other. The do's and don'ts, and a whole lot of stories. But, as we always say, we'll get to that soon. Now, we have a... um, A lot of shows coming up, so how do you get in contact with us? How in the world are you going to contact us? Well, first, let's go to the website, RaiderCopNation.com. It's all one word. Real easy to get to. Subscribe there if you would like. You get a notification every time we send uh, a cannon blast off. Or you can go to iTunes, look us up there. Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, the list goes on and on and on. Podbean, we're all on those um, avenues, elements, networks, whatever you want to call them, up there as well. We always, when we have a podcast, we have the conversation. And as I've said before, I try to relate what I'm going to talk about in the conversation with the subject matter of the episode. This one was not that difficult, extreme ownership. I said, well, actually I had too many avenues of scripture that I could attack, so I had to kind of limit them. So then I said, you know what, I'm just going to make it simple. When we look at extreme ownership, and you take the two words, extreme and ownership, you're basically owning up to something to the highest level. And so often in our walk, in our journey with God, we claim ownership very quickly, but it is not that extreme. Let me give you an example. You've probably seen them before in your life. They are the Sunday warrior. You see them gallantly walking in to church in front of the congregation. They scream the loudest hallelujah and amen you've ever heard. And then they walk out and slowly, as Sunday goes into Monday, they start to regress to who they were. And there's really not an extreme part of that ownership. They kind of tell a a little story here and a little curse there and a dirty joke over there. And they start to slip away. But don't, don't panic on me. There's always next Sunday. When we look at extreme ownership is because we are really doing a self examination. You're looking at yourself, and your walk with God should be just that. Listen, there's nobody here judging you, just God. You should really sit down and examine yourself. Do I F-bomb too much? Should I be 
smoking that? Should I be drinking this? Should I be in that relationship? Should I be staying a little longer at work and saying that it was really twice that amount of time? Should I, should I, should I? And in life and in our daily struggle, we can come up with a lot of should I's. Extreme ownership is saying, I know it's wrong. I'm going to confess that it's wrong. And I'm going to change. So my ownership of my guilt or or my errors is because at the end, I want to change. I want to progress. I don't want to stay a little person any longer. I want to grow. And when we look at that in our spiritual life, it's easily translated into our everyday life. If we don't grow from the mistakes that we've made or that we see on a daily basis, we stay small, like a little midget. But when we do a little self-examination and we're honest with ourselves, then we have extreme ownership in our walk with God towards salvation. Of course, the biggest element of that is to admit that you and I, I have to admit it too, have made sinful behavior, have done things I should not have done, confess with a humble heart, and now I've got a partner. And that partner is Jesus because I'm proclaiming him as my Lord and Savior and off I go into my journey. Episode number 56, Extreme Ownership. We are going to look at that right now. Episode number 56, Extreme Ownership. Where the concept comes from, well, it's a book that was written by two gentlemen, former Navy SEALs, Jocko Willick and Leif Babin. They basically put their experiences in combat and in war and translated that into everyday society, whether it's business, whether it's your home, how you can take ownership of what is occurring in your life, similar to what we discussed in the conversation. Today, I want to just, and I'm going to post their book and recommended reading for anybody listening. It is a must. I have read it not once, but twice. It is a career builder. It is a career builder for those individuals that really take the time to read it and understand it. But today I want to take the extreme ownership concept and we're going to look at it within terms of law enforcement and I'm going to base some of uh, this uh, episode on my personal experience uh, with this concept. Now, Ward teaches us that a valuable lesson in life, it teaches you the lesson to be humble. It teaches you the lesson of your vulnerabilities. It teaches you the lesson of death because death is lurking around in the middle of war. But most importantly, it teaches you the lesson of leadership because you want to be at your best for the best survival rate. Well, law enforcement every day when you put on your uniform and you get ready to go towards your tour of duty, you also have the element of death lurking around. So exhibiting leadership, regardless of your position, 
is extremely important in that survival. As we said earlier, not staying a little person, but growing each and every day. You become a giant. My personal experience of 27-year career in law enforcement, I spent approximately about five of those 27 years in the role of a leader, official capacity, or better said, I was paid for it. The truth of the matter is, early on when I became an officer, um, probably my first year, my rookie year, I was starting to get pats on the back from my superiors because of my detailed work ethic. Dot the I's crossed the T's was there. And it was lacking in much of what these supervisors were looking at their current squads. So I excelled. I started to gain responsibilities quickly. Things that really, at my level, I probably should not have been doing, but I was told to do. I was still on probation and working what was called the pay roster or basically the timesheet for payment of the officers in the squad. The leaders of the time or the supervisors said, well, it's a good uh, uh, role for you to learn uh, so when you become a supervisor. Or it was another way of saying, I do less, you do my job for me. And I went into other responsibilities that I was given in my 27 years. And as I stated earlier, uh, during my 27 years, five of those years, I was given a battlefield uh, commission promotion and actually paid as a supervisor because of a lack of a supervisor. So I gained a lot of experience. I had unique ability to learn what was the objective to be carried out because I was the schmuck carrying out the objective as an officer. When transitioning to the supervisor now, I knew exactly what order was being given out because I have to do it too. Oh, I had to do it too. So I knew what these guys had to deal with. You see, before we get into the subject matter, I want to kind of break down the difference between a subordinate and a superior. The subordinate is the guy that's going to get cockeyed on, and basically told what they want he or she to do on a daily basis. So they have a source of expressing their frustration with other squad members that have the same rank of officer that they have. So they bitch about their leaders, they bitch about the commands, they tell you basically this thing doesn't even make sense. Now, let's focus on what I just said. This thing doesn't make sense because this is going to be one of the foundations to this podcast when we look at extreme ownership. And then as the role that I was given in being a, a supervisor, and it was no little task either. I want to kind of point that out because I was thrown into the position and there were a lot of subordinates. <laughs> we're not talking about two or three guys you were looking at. Um, most of the areas that I worked in my career had a lot of personnel in them because they were either hotbeds or 
um, like in my uh, ending part of my career was in training, and you had a lot of people that were assigned to that. So I, I, I knew the delicate, fine walking format that you have to have in between throwing out the directive and the objective to the officers because I know how they would feel in certain situations. And I also knew the objectives because they were told to me by other superiors and it was easier for me to understand. So what am I saying? Well, what I'm saying is in my role as a battlefield commander position, I was given the complete picture, the complete picture. I can go back in my career and, you know, I can basically sit here and do a whole year of episodes on bad directives but to avoid that painful process, I'm just going to talk about one specific horrible directive that was given. I remember being called to a specific area, a specific scene. There was several officers that were emerging in that same area. We were maybe, off the top of my head, 10 or 12 of us. And then the sergeant shows up and says, we've got to look for something in a specific area, specific sector. And I'm not going to tell you what it is, but if you find it, you're going to know what it is. And we all looked at each other saying, is this freaking dude for real? And we, we thought he was kidding around. No, 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 he wouldn't tell us. He came up with all this baloney about that um, the state police force in Florida is the Florida Department of Law Enforcement. had called them and, uh, you know, top secret CIA crap all of a sudden. And I can't tell you what it is, but you're going to know what it is when you find it. And this guy actually allowed 10 to 12 of us officers to walk into situations, we had no idea what the hell we were looking for. Then it dawned on me, you can't find something you don't know, you don't know what you're looking for. Of course, just to end the story, we didn't find anything. It is scary if you don't know the whole picture of what the objective is. So when we look at extreme ownership, we know that it is a process where you have to basically in the level of command. Now we're, we, we've transitioned from officer. Let me talk to you more about supervisor going to these meetings, listening to what the problem is and what they believe would be the solution and then sending you out to carry out the order. I had so much more information than I had when I was playing role of officer. Now I know who's looking, why we're doing what we're doing. I could easily figure out the objective and the solution and go towards that goal. To me, it was a no-brainer, and I did that for much of my career. Most of my career, I was blessed with some very talented supervisors. And I'm going to give you kind of like a personality of some of them. I remember first coming on, and my supervisor, my initial supervisor, just, just graduating from the academy, was besides admiring himself in the mirror for hours on end, only had uh, two good friends in the squad and everybody else was uh, just there. So 
Not much feedback, not much anything. You just drifted from place to place while he gazed at himself in the mirror. My other supervisor I had was, screw what the rule book says. I run this. I know what I'm doing. I'm in charge. And it was uh, kick butt and take names. And we worked like that off the skin of our teeth and got through some very hairy situations but that's how this person uh, operated. So we were zero to 100 constantly in the 100, 90 to 100 range. And then uh, I transitioned to a supervisor, which was also an officer with me prior, and we were friends. And I didn't know how that was going to work, but I can tell you it was the best experience of my career. He ended up being my supervisor for a decade, and I learned leadership. I was given a directive by him that he said, well, you're very good at looking at policies and looking at rules and regulations and so forth and translating them. Remember, I was very analytical. I needed to know the big picture to get to the objective. So he said, we're having a lot of issues. Now, this is late 80s, early 90s. We're transitioning now to some type of video video type of uh, enforcement. And so they wanted me to kind of look at the statute and look at how we can better cover ourselves on certain situations. So I don't want to bore you with that aspect of why he wanted me to do it. We'll, we'll tell you that in another episode, another podcast. But he, the supervisor, immediately recognized a skill set that one of his subordinates had and he was going to use it in the toolbox of his squad. It was an excellent theory. It worked like I've never seen. It gelled. It put all the pieces of the puzzle together, and we were allowed to really, really excel. And as a result of that, I uh, I took off in my career in learning, and I believe the squad did too. We were recognized as one of the top squads in the agency and all the areas that nobody wanted to be recognized in, like number one in force. So, But we knew how to execute force. We knew when to start, when to end. We knew how to write it. We learned, we perfected the craft that the people in the agency, the leaders didn't know how to do. When I first started, and if you are were in law enforcement in that time period, late 80s, early 90s, you know that there was a force continuum. Subject did, you did, your reaction versus the subject's reaction. And it was like a a little ladder that you would climb. Well, everybody that had half a brain knew that force continuums do not work. They're garbage. And thank God that the United States Supreme Court told us there was garbage, and it's been gone from law enforcement for a long time, thank God. But that was my platform that I had to kind of build on How were we going to execute force? Let me tell you, where I was assigned, you were going to execute force on a daily basis, not once, not twice, multiple times, multiple, okay? You were going to live with force and writing, force and writing. We were experts at it. And... That was that supervisor. He guided us for a decade through that process. He was a leader. When there was big-time criticism coming from the command, 
He'd go downstairs and take the hits. He'd take the hit. He was reflecting the extreme ownership of what was going on. But after all the criticism that the leadership had of him and his squad, the agency was getting results. So results trumped everything else. My other supervisor that I shortly came after him showed up with a briefcase and obviously did not understand what we did for a living and then wanted to go to an extreme because the squad was, it had a tremendous reputation for being badass. So I wanted to fake it was a badass while carrying a briefcase. So through that nightmare, we finally got rid of him and we came into another leader. And this leader wasn't um, book smarts, but he was street smart. So what he told us was, let's go do your freaking jobs. I got your back. And this guy rumbled with everybody that criticized his squad. He was the first one in and the last one out. He took care of his squad like a parent. And we loved that, that quality, and we grew from that quality. And then as I exit out and I go into, I leave that squad and I go somewhere else, I learned from an individual that I respect highly how to supervise. And it was explained to me about everyone's unique characteristics of when to throw the rope and when to pull them in because they were acting out and when to allow them to do their thing. It was a difficult balance, but knowing the full picture, you were that much better. What we learn in, in extreme ownership is if something goes wrong and there's an objective and you're part of the team, you can't raise your hand and say it's his fault or that one's fault or, or her fault. That might be the easiest thing. But if somebody in the squad failed in their objective, the whole squad failed. Somebody, somebody just didn't understand the objective. Therefore, the objective was not clearly transmitted. And because of that, it failed. It crumbled. The objective was not met. Now, I know what a lot of you are thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Listen, uh, some of the retards I worked with, you, they, they're not going to work in your little theory of extreme ownership. And that's true. I worked with them too. Difficult people. A lot of them were sent by the command staff to cause destruction in the squad. Yeah. And we knew who they were and we knew who sent them. But we, we were dealt with them. I often used to use an example uh, of a mob story. And it was Crazy Joe Gallo from the Colombo family. And the media demmed him uh, and his squad, his little group, uh, the gang that can't shoot straight. And he was in and out of prison and all this other stuff. And one time he's walking down the courthouse steps and the media's flashing pictures. You know, there's a mobster and his whole squad. And they had a little midget in the squad. And they go, and one of the media guys screams out, hey, Joey, what's up? What's the story with the midget? And he looks at the midget, and he looks at the reporter, and he goes, he's not a midget. He's our midget. And that said it all. He's our midget. In other words, he's part of our crew. I don't care what size he is. I know when I give him what he needs to do, it's going to get done. So we had them. We had the midgets. 
but we also knew how to tap in to what the midgets were good at and get them to do it. It was about not losing interest. Now let's look at the other flip side of it as a supervisor. Are you overly supervising and managing your crew? Are you too laid back that your crew has absolutely no idea where you're at, even if you're still employed with the agency? Are you a motor mouth that talks, 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 talks about when I was younger, when this, when that, and teach nobody nothing? What type of leader are you to the agency? Or are you all about business? I told you in my career, I can point to three leaders that built me into a leader that the objectives were clearly given to me and I could do my job. But not all of them were like that. There were piss poor decisions left and right of us and chaotic in chaotic scenes that it was just amazing that these people were that stupid. But as a leader, one of the faults that they had, that they did not communicate well with their subordinates. As I said before, some of them were too busy admiring themselves in uniform in the mirror. They actually believed that they were God's greatest gift. And as a result, they didn't mesh very well with the squad. No, folks, a leader transmits the goal. If I'm a supervisor of a squad in law enforcement, and my superiors have given me a directive... I need to ask a lot of questions about the directive because I need to know the ultimate goal. Once I understand what that ultimate goal is that the agency has, whether I like it or I don't like the objective, I can easily tell my squad how we're going to meet that objective as fast as possible. I'm also going to listen to my squad And get their feedback. I'm going to empower them. I'm going to give them the task. And I'm going to sit back and watch them produce the task. I'm only going to step in when I think, well, you've gone a little bit above or or a little bit overboard of what the objective was. I'll reel you in a little bit. Or... I need to shove you because you're not moving at the speed we need the objective to be carried out. But I'm not here to tell you what the objective is every step of the way, hitting you over the head with a ruler. There's a fine line to be a supervisor. Being a supervisor is often being a parent. The people under your care you should like. Personality should not be involved. Remember, that subordinate is a reflection of you, whether you like it or not. That's the card. Those are the deck of cards you were dealt. Remember the midget story at the courthouse. And as a result, they are a reflection of you and your leadership. So you should nurture them and you should make them grow. Pushing them constantly. They need to progress. Now, there are some people out there saying, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you don't know about the clowns that don't do anything, and they don't want to deal with them, and they are their superiors. So they just come to work, don't do nothing, hands in their pocket, and get away with it every day. Yeah, worked with them and dealt with them too. But the bottom line is, that's the failure of the supervisor to address it. One of the issues with extreme ownership is not being too pushy, not being too lenient. But when you see 
Your subordinates should know your pet peeves. And they should know not to cross the line on those pet peeves. And let's say, and I hope they are, one of them is safety. And they show up and violate a safety rule, then right there on the spot, they need to be corrected. Not write it in a notepad and I'm going to hold it against you three weeks later. Right then and there, what the hell are you doing? Because they'll learn to respect you for it. Now, the extreme ownership is a top-tier down uh, process as well as a down-tier upwards process. And what I mean by that is just because you are an officer, you're not part of what you might regard as the leadership of the agency. I just do what I'm told. That person is called the yellow sticky person. You know, you've got to, as a supervisor, write things on yellow stickies. Do this, do that, do the other thing. And if there's no yellow stickies, they're walking around with their hands in their pocket, they don't know what to do. Well, yellow sticky people exist in the world. Your job is to motivate yellow sticky person. So invert what they need to do. How do you do that? Well, you know, you're always writing little stickies for them to carry out their daily functions. Write a sticky today that says, what are you going to do today? And watch them completely have a meltdown because they don't know how to think on their own. As a supervisor, you've got to build, build, build that emphasis of with or without me, the show goes. Okay, if we call uh, a meeting and the superior is not there, do you sit around and wait for the superior to get there? If you kind of know what the meeting's about? Or does the second in command grab the bull by the horns and start the meeting without that superior? There's a big difference in leadership. That's why it is important to understand the ultimate goal. And that is what extreme ownership is all about. Whatever your position in the agency, whatever goals and objectives that the agency is trying to carry out, you are an important role in that objective. Carry out your responsibility to the full extent, and if you don't understand anything, you need to get clear and concise instructions. Now, I know that there are supervisors that speak other languages other than English, like gibberish. And when you ask them a question, what comes out of their mouth is tremendously shocking. If you didn't get it there, ask and go respectfully to the one above. Because failure to get involved in an incident without the true objective is chaos. The act of performing the same mistake over and over again is called idiocism. So you, you want to stop that as best you can. Now, the last point I want to talk about, and I know that it comes to a cheering crowd, is it gets boring. And the reason it gets boring is because you haven't attached yourself to the conversation Okay, you haven't looked at yourself in the middle of the group. You haven't owned up to the podcast or the episode. That's why it's boring. See how that example worked? The other aspect I want to look at as we close this out is people have needs. And as a leader, barking orders, a chihuahua can do. You might not understand what he's barking about, but he's sure going to bark them. So you have to look at what these people's needs are. People want to be respected. People want to be heard. People have goals and values. As a leader, your job, most importantly, is to have them reach their goals and their values that they've set for themselves, their objectives, and help them get up to that level. 
Does the next time you have a, a conversation with your subordinate regarding their evaluation, ask them what their objectives and their goals are. Why? Your job is to carry them to that level. Not necessarily scold them all the time like Mother Hubbard. Okay? Your job is to assist them because they they are a reflection of you. It is so difficult to talk to people that really are not very communicative. And those people exist too. But sometimes you have to communicate through body language. And body language tells me a lot. Because communication is only 7%. 7, 7% of spoken words. Everything else is what the appearance that I'm getting. The look, the stance, everything. That body chemistry speaks volumes. As a leader, you have to understand your subordinate's body language. Sometimes it's the form that they use to talk to you. Ain't nobody got time for that. As a leader, you have to look at what your subordinates are good at. And not everybody has that skill to key on this one's ability and that one's ability. Remember I talked about that early in the podcast that one of my supervisor was excellent at picking up on people's abilities and using them for the squad. It is so important. And remember, it's job-related. Doesn't mean, wow, I heard you're a good cook. (laughs) Job-related. And most definitely you, your squad, your agency, your community, everyone benefits from this. It's about keeping your people motivated. But the best example that I learned from a supervisor was I had already around 23 or 24 years on and a chief once was having a conversation with me and the chief at the time of this conversation they're going to set in front of me They were a sergeant, and they were telling me about my former supervisor and how they were, things that I did not know. We had a tit-for-tat with a former sergeant about reporting for duty, and it's a a long story, but um, basically me and my partner, we made it a habit of looking at our watches that were synchronized and at a certain time showing up for our assignments, making this specific sergeant go nuts because he was used to people coming in early and not being paid for it, and he wanted us to do the same. So this was a more prideful ego thing early on in my career, but I didn't know this chief told me this story that, oh, they were barking up a storm. They wanted to hang you guys on the flagpole and write you guys up and do this and do that. And we knew that. We, we knew that they were hating on us, but we also knew how to defend ourselves. But he said, your supervisor took care of all that by basically saying, listen, you got a gripe with what they're doing, and you're making a charge that they were technically late. Well, dock them. But don't dock them out of their pay. Dock them out of mine. I go, you got to be kidding me. He said, yeah. He did it for years. That's a leader, folks. And you really don't have too many of those. He never told us about it. Never. Recently, we spoke to him about that. And he said, oh, yeah, that. Eh, No big deal. That's a leader. What's up next? We have always a list of things. We're covering episode 56, Extreme Ownership. And remember, the goal here is always for you, the listener, to learn. I've been listening to some law enforcement podcasts out there, 
And uh, between war stories that they tell and jokes and all this other stuff, and I'm not really getting anything. And uh, here, my goal, my objective, learning as I grow that I need to inform you, the listener. Listen, there's going to be podcasts you're not interested in. You have something better else to do, so you're going to hit the off button. I got that. But we're covering an array of things. It's like a giant zigzag puzzle, and we're putting everything together. So uh, episode 57 is coming up, which is the plastic gun. The plastic gun. Pistol Pete will be with us, and we're going to talk about from the era of Glock in the 80s when it first came out. Remember how everybody looked at you and they said, are you serious? You have a plastic gun? Because everybody had, you know, Smith & Westerns and the basic metal gun. Uh, my platform is better than yours. A plastic gun? Things are going to fall on the floor and crack. Well, we look at today... Plastic guns are all over the place. The Plastic Gun, episode 57. We're going to talk about the plastic gun, how it developed, how where it is today, how you can use that plastic gun, if you own one, to your benefit. Because there's so many things that you could do to it that in other cases, not that you couldn't do it, but it'd be a little bit more difficult. So we're going to look at the plastic gun and how also manufacturers out there are trying to catch up to Glock, which was the first plastic gun that hit the market, and how a lot of them are running out there so fast to compete, they're missing a couple of things. They're cutting too many corners and... That's worrisome in itself. And then, of course, don't forget our closing on the firearms um, um, series that we had of three, uh, training with a firearm, and that will be number 60. So we're, we're getting there. Human trafficking and gangs, 58 and 59. We always got something for you. You can always reach us at RaiderCopNation.com. We are on all these other platforms as we discuss. Our Twitter handle is NationCop. And of course, we're on Facebook. If you just Google Facebook and RaiderCopNation, we should pop out. Why do you want to connect with us? Well, if we understand where what you want, we can deliver it a lot better. We like to be in tune with our audience, but let me tell you, no place else are you going to receive so much information. One of the things I did as an instructor, and I remember my superiors asking me, I need you to teach this directive, let's say. Do you think you can handle it? And then maybe it was a two-hour course or something. And I would say yes. Always say yes. And the reason I could always say boldly yes, because when I walked up to start my training session, it was a two, let's say, two-hour material. My brain already knew eight hours of material. I remember once somebody telling me, well, I need you to teach a specific course. How much information do you know? And I go, I could teach 80 hours of it. And that's how I always grew. Always obtaining more knowledge is the route to go. As always, I am always privileged to be out here and humbled by the listeners that take time to listen to this old guy talk a little war story and a little bit about his former career. I continue to say that the reason that we're here is because we're motivating and mentoring many that listen. 
and that is our purpose. It is my humble experience to be your host today, Alpha Mike, on the Raider Cop Nation. I bless in Jesus' name you. I bless in Jesus' name your community. And may the Lord continue to bless our great nation, the United States of America. Thank you. 